Right, so we are spending the year traveling through the book of Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible. Uh, we, we said, and uh, we said this, because I say this every week, we think it is a brilliant book for us in 2019 because actually it's a book all about God's invitation and call to a world that is choosing not to follow him, to follow him. And as such, the themes that emerge out of Genesis are themes that are very pertinent and live in our world today. And last week, um, we talked about Noah. So he's the guy with the big boat and the animals. And we always think it's two by two, mainly two by two, but sometimes he took on seven. Um, it's uh, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and a little bit on. This morning, I'm going to kind of do run 6, 7, and 8 together. So I'm not going to read them all to you. So I would love you to go and read those chapters uh, um, yourself after this talk. And I'm going to talk to you about um, what Genesis 6, 7, and 8 tell us about um, the judgment of God. Um, it's not something our culture likes to speak about. Um, there's a song that we sing called In Christ Alone, and it has a line in it about the wrath of God being satisfied. And there was a member of our church family who every time we sung it used to come up and just pull me aside and go, I don't like that line. Uh, and we'd have a chat about why they didn't like the line uh, and a chat about why I do like the line. Um, so so we, I, we're aware that it's a really difficult thing. And we don't like the concept of anybody, let alone God, sitting in judgment over us. And just to be very clear, it's something that this book, the Bible, is very clear on. Um, God is over us, and he is over us as judge. Now, we are talking from Genesis 6, 7, and 8. um, But we are also talking about this as the people um, who have read the whole book. So if you haven't yet read the whole book, I'm going to give you a quick praises. It ends really well. Uh, and part of the way through the book, we get to meet this guy called Jesus, and we learn about Easter, and we learn an awful lot about what God's judgment and justice and his mercy and love look like. So as we filter these truths, we are filtering them as Easter people. We're not Old Testament people. We're not a religious people who do our works to please an angry God. We are the people of the book who know that God is love and that in Jesus has rescued us. And that actually these truths are transformed and by that experience and by that knowledge. So, so it is serious, but it need not be heavy. Is that okay? Excellent. Right. So the first thing to say um, is uh, Adam. Brilliant. Is not Adam. Um, although Adam is in Genesis, but this Adam. I just want to put up um, the first slide. My first point <laughs> is that God is judge. That's a, uh, a referee from an American sport. Uh, that God is judge. And there's a um, a Bible verse I want us to focus on. Right, so this is from the beginning of the Noah story, Genesis 6, um, and this is verses um, 6 and 7. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. He basically saw what we were up to. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Genesis 6, 6 and 7. God is judge, um, and the fall from Genesis 3 tells us that he judges our sin and rebellion, and he judges the whole earth as a consequence of what we have done. Um, the, the, the New York um, pastor, Tim Keller, calls this doctrine of God, um, he says it's the one our culture finds the hardest. It's the one our culture finds the hardest, because what it says is that over all of the choices you and I make, Over all of the right decisions, over all of the wrong decisions, uh, over all of the kind of um, fallenness and mess of this world, there is a God sitting over that. And that God sits over all evil, pain, and wrongdoing, and he sits over it as judge. 
He sits over it as judge. And what is more, the Bible teaches us, as Paul says, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are all in this together, that we are all under this judgment of death that we learned about from Genesis chapter 3. From dust you came, to dust you shall return. Keller says this is the Christian doctrine that really offends Our culture doesn't want this God to exist. We don't want the God who is judge like this to exist. A number of reasons. One, uh, it's a massive challenge to individualism and postmodernity. The world that we live in, full of pluralistic thinking and many truths, this doctrine crashes against it and says there is one single truth. There is one moral objective, and it rests not with us and what we decide or with what a small group of us decide, but it rests with God who is above and over all. And we live in a world where we are used to, this is my truth, tell me yours. We are used to um, engaging with different cultures and different concepts of truth. And so we have become kind of, we don't believe in this one objective truth. I've said this before, but it's the line, it's the thing I love. When my kids do philosophy in primary school, it's always introduced by the teacher I've got one more to go through, and I think the same thing will happen again as the subject in which there are no wrong answers. To which I always say to my child, two, one of them got put straight in the red corner for this, say to your teacher, that's wrong. And when they say, no, 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 you're wrong for saying that, you then say, well, I just, you just told me there are no wrong answers. And then, and then get out of that. Um, what happened, Jonathan was accused of being a bit cocky. Charlotte just went straight into the red corner. They, they had this thing around. You, you. Um, but actually, the teacher didn't want to engage with that. You know? and that's, so, so we don't like this idea as God is judge because it says there is a truth. There is a God who sits over all, and, and all of our kind of working it all out is subject to that. So it's one reason, because actually it challenges individualism, pluralism, and post-modernity. Uh, the other thing that um, I hear an awful lot in our culture, and I, I personally would want to sign up to this, is um, I just want a God who loves. I just want a God who loves. I just want a God who will tolerate me and love me no matter what. And it's, it sounds re- really, really persuasive. Um, but it doesn't take into account how we are ourselves around pain and injustice and evil. Actually, we don't just love. We want to see justice done, even if in the loving thing, uh, the, you know, there are consequences. It doesn't, it doesn't take into account the experience of people in, in, in a bombed-out city in Syria, or if James was here, his experience when he was younger of going to southern Sudan and meeting the people um, who had suffered in southern Sudan. Um, and and it's, we, we often struggle when we meet people who say, actually, I don't want a God who's just love. I want a God who is just. And, and the Christian theologian and writer uh, Miroslav Volf, who, who grew up in the former Yugoslav Republic, talks about this. He said, actually, if you have a God who is not justice, and there is no objective judge, it actually frees human beings up to be far more violent than not. Because it says there is no consequence to what you do. And so justice ends up, Wolf says, residing just in the power of the s- strongest person and how they deem justice to be. And Wolf, who's a pacifist, says, truly the only way you can become a pacifist is to know that there is a God who loves and who is just and will see everything right so that you can let go. When I was young, um, growing up in Ireland, there was a bomb that went off in a place called Enniskillen. Some of you will remember the story of a man called Gordon Wilson who very powerfully forgave the IRA bombers. Because he was able to do that because he was a Christian. 
And he believed in a God who would see all things right. And so he was able to let go of his anger and pain and entrust those bombers into the justice of the system in this country and into the good justice of God and not look for vengeance himself. And Wolf says, actually, when you remove the idea of there being an objective God as judge, and basically, to paraphrase, all hell breaks loose. And so we say we want... We don't want this one God, but then we have all these moral truths that collide into each other. We say we want this God who's love, but then what we mean by that is a God who just stands back and let pain and evil and suffering carry on and happen. And so actually they're not really tenable, actually, as arguments. But the other reason, there's a couple of reasons that I think we don't want to hear this, is because of the impact upon us. Number one, before we become Christians, and number two, after we become Christians. So there's a famous story, nobody knows if it's um, true, but it's lovely, about the Times of London uh, writing an article in which they said, you know, basically, could we have all the people, all the the brains of the world, write in and tell us what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, the um, Catholic writer, wrote in and just wrote, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And one of the major problems, stumbling blocks that we come to with this concept of God as judge is that actually it means that I am part of the problem. I am under the curse of the sin of sin and death, and I stand judged. And actually part of a major step into freedom is realizing that, that actually my anger, even if it is small compared to a dictator in history, is still anger. That my jealousy, even, it's, even compared to the person who robs and steals, is still jealousy and is still wrong. That my sharp word, not said but thought, is as bad as if I had said it. And that actually that puts me under the curse of sin and death. And then the second one is we don't quite often like it as Christians because we think, um, well, it, it might not sound very good. And actually we do like the idea of a God who's loving. So I have a friend of mine who is... Um, involved in church leadership, and who said to me about this subject, said, the thing is, you're a little bit full-on, Wayne. And, uh, and they said, I just want everybody to know that God loves them. And I just want everybody to know that God loves them and loves them and loves them. And then, and then they said to me, uh, and I, I, I wish I'd been a bit harsher back, they said to me, because when I get to heaven, I would rather God said, insert name here, you were just a little too loving, you know? Um, and it sounds really sweet, except if I'm driving down the motorway and I know there's an accident on the, other, on the other lane and that cars are piling up into each other and there are cars coming down the other lane at 90 miles an hour and I said, Do you know, I think that accident's going to clear so I'm not going to warn anybody and I'd rather get to my destination and find out that I, was just, that I was just a little bit too kind of, actually I should have been a little bit more kind of, hey, there's an accident down the lane. That's the argument. I personally... I'm going to come on to God as love. I would rather get to heaven and God say, do you know, Wayne, you were a little bit too full on. There's a load more people here than you thought there were. As opposed to you were a little bit too loving and there's less people here than you thought there were. That's, you know, so, so God is judge. It frees me. If God is judge, it frees me from judging you. Frees me from judging myself. It frees me from seeking justice on my terms. And it causes me to go, where can I find a rescue? What kind of God do you believe in? This book is very clear that there is one God, Lord of all, judge of all, and that we are all under that judgment. Um, The second thing 
that we see uh, from the book, but also from Genesis 6, 7, and 8, is that God is an active judge. So the story goes like this. Uh, God sees the wickedness, regretted that he's made it. I'm going to wipe humanity from the earth. Noah is a good and a righteous man and who walks with God. Uh, and, uh, and, and he's called to build an ark and to bring in the animals two by two. And, uh, and then we go from there. Uh, we'll go floating. If you don't know the story, read it. But in Genesis 7, 4, it says this, Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Genesis is very clear that actually God is active in his judgment. Um, now, it's tempting in my life to want an active God for the good bits. You know, the God who answers a prayer of healing. Uh, the God who answers a, a prayer of provision, uh, the God who gives me a car parking space when I need a car parking space, uh, but not want the God who kind of, you know, is, is, is calling me to account for my sin and my evil and my wrongdoing. I might, I might even be, uh, you know, uh, be judging me for some of that and be actively judging me. I don't want that act of God. I want this act of God. Um, and the Bible doesn't give us that one. He gives us, it gives us both. And one of the views that is quite often put up about God and judgment and, and the world that we live in now is that actually God, God's judgment is passive. And it's not meant in a bad way, but actually that, you know, Adam and Eve went, done with you. God said, okay, dust you are, to dust you shall return, give you some animal clothes, off you go. Life's going to be pretty tough now. And then went, right, sort it out. And that the mess that we see of this world is just the consequences of that sin working itself out. And that God has kind of put his hands up and gone, see how it goes for you guys. But that's often said by the people who say, I want the God of love as well. So they go, I, I, God is love, so he's left us over to his passive judgment. My experience of love is that he doesn't stand idly by when things go wrong. My experience of love is it's not passive, that love is active and very active. Um, and, and so this, and think about it. Do you want a passive God? I don't. And the Bible teaches us something else. The Bible teaches that God is both active in his judgment and active in withholding his judgment at the same time. Um, it starts in the garden. Adam and Eve fall, and he, the judgment is declared over them. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. But they don't return to dust then. Actually, God provides for them um, clothes, and then tells them into the garden with advice, actually. And we, we, if you were listening... Adam names Eve, life giver, a step of faith. God declares a judgment, but then withholds that judgment and sends them out into life. But as we've talked about a couple of weeks ago, life with him, even in the fallen world. And there was a man called Jonathan Edwards, who was an American um, philosopher and, 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 and pastor from 1700s and preached this famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was said of, of the sermon that when he preached it, uh, men were holding on to the edges of the pews for fear of sliding into hell while he spoke. Uh, I've read it, and I spend most of my life trying to work out what the language is he's using. Um, but, but one of the points that he makes really, really powerfully is that, is that God withholds his judgment, and that actually we see him active in our world in goodness and in love and in joy and in love and, and enabling us to live actually in a fallen world good lives. That God is actually powerfully at work leading us to him by showing us the mess of a fallen world and also showing his goodness and showing us what the world could be like. And Edwards makes the point that this world is better for God's activities in it, in judgment and in withholding judgment, than if he was passive and standing idly by. It's the nature of our, of our God in our world, convicting us of our sin and showing us and giving us grace. 
In my life, if I'm honest, and sometimes I have to stop and think this bit through because it's easier, I, you know, you have to work yourself up to it. I am really grateful for the times when God has convicted me of my sin. Because it's usually shown up stuff in my life, in my character and how I'm living, that are not good and that are causing destruction to me and other people around me. Time and again, if I look back and I think about the times that God has actively stepped in and judged or convicted me of my sin and of my wrongdoing, and I have gone with that and gone with him in grace and repentance, I have found a level of freedom and healing and holding that wasn't wholeness that wasn't there before. I'd love to tell you that every time he puts his finger on something in my heart, I'm going, hey, brilliant, Jesus, you're at it again. No, but actually, as I stop and I think, actually, if I'm honest, I'm really grateful for how God uses other people and his Holy Spirit to convict me of my sin. I'm also incredibly grateful for how he shows grace, for prayers, the prayers that are, that are answered even before you've prayed them, the stuff that happens that you know is God's goodness. And, and I'm so grateful for both. And actually, over the course of my adult life, they've led me closer to him. Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and to turn around. And part of that kindness is to call out our sin and our rebellion. Am I open, that the eye is for you, to the work of an act of God who will both judge me and convict me, but also um, show me his grace and his love? Will I let his judgment land in my life? Will I let his conviction land in my heart? And will I repent? God is a judge. God is an active judge. But also Genesis is very clear that God is a merciful judge. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But so, the, so Noah, 40 days, 40 nights, the rain falls. Uh, it's been like Bristol for the last six weeks or so. Uh, um, every time you look out the window, and then so you've got this scene of like Noah in his ark, which is really rather big, floating along. Um, he's, he's got, as far as we go, as far as we know, he's got no engine, so he can't actually choose where to go. Um, and it says this, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the livestock that were with them in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Um, that remembered, that Hebrew word, it's the first time a word linked to what we understand as grace. Something we don't deserve appears in the Bible. God remembered Noah. Um, and God causes the floods to go. All the way through the Noah story, it is God who tells Noah what to do, and Noah responds. Um, the most powerful bit is all the animals, Noah and everybody. I love, I, love, I love, you need to go and read it. So all the animals turn up. We just presume they turn up. If you're Noah, you're like, what? what's going on here? And then, and then, and then you know, and Noah and his family go in the ark. And, I, and the story basically doesn't quite do it like this. They're all in the ark. The rains are starting to come. And I can imagine if it was in my family, my wife turning to me and goes, so what do we do now? And, uh, and I'd go, well, I think we need to shut the door. And Wendy would say, well, how, how did you build it so you shut the door? And I'd be like, to be quite honest, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I wasn't told how to shut the door. So, and we'd be watching the waters come up. And then the text just says simply, and God shut the door. And God shut the door. Noah trusts him to the extent that he lets God shut the door. I don't know if I would be able to do that. Um, lots of cultures, about 68 apparently have been recorded, have flood narratives. Lots of explanations as to why floods. What sets the biblical account apart is it's the only one where the flood is specifically linked to the sin of humanity. It's not just because the gods don't like the noise that we're all making. 
So in the, in, the, in the Gilgamesh epic, it's basically humanity's having a bit of a party, and the gods are like, I'd like to get some sleep, let's just flood it. Uh, but, but actually, it's specifically linked to the sin. And in this one, there is also specific rescue, unique bits of the biblical epic. But also, we need to realize that the flood is, is not sudden or unexpected. Uh, Noah would have needed to go to the builder's merchants very regularly for probably about 100 years to... Um, to buy his, well, it wasn't, it was probably Reed. Anyway, but, to, you know, to, he, so anybody who could see was this guy's building something. What are you going on? And written into the text is this idea of an invitation slash warning to the culture around him about what was coming. It's an invitation to walk with God before his judgment comes. And the story in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 works almost like a reset story. You know, like when you've got the, um, if anybody here works in IT, cover your ears. Okay, because you know you like you got the spinning beach ball of death, and you go, I'm just going to plug it out at the wall and plug it back in again. Which I know is it's like, would you drive your car into a wall at 60 miles an hour? No, I wouldn't. It's not a car. Anyway, but that's that's what effectively God is doing. Is He's like control alt delete and and up room and resetteth, and it's a reset story. But it's specifically a reset story that, as we're going to learn, doesn't quite work. Um, as soon as the ark has landed, actually, we see it doesn't quite work. And, and that's to teach us a couple of things. Number one is that the problem is with the human heart, even Noah's. And it reminds us that Noah himself was under this judgment. And number two, it's to point us to the bigger and better and perfect reset that is to come. As I said last week, Noah is what we call a type. He's a type of Jesus. He points to Jesus And in Jesus and at the cross, we understand that this is where God's justice and mercy meet in active love. At the cross, God himself takes the consequence of our sin, takes the punishment of our sin. God himself judges himself as one of us in our place. The judgment is met. It tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us just how serious sin and rebellion against God is, that it takes the very life of the Son of God to pay it off. But number two, it tells us the depth of God's love and how far he would go to win each and every one of us back. How far he would go to free us from that judgment. And we learn from Hebrews that Noah is a man of faith. It is by faith he builds the ark. And this is the key for all of us for life with God who is judge, is faith in Jesus and faith in the work of the cross to meet the judgment for our sin and to bring us back into new life with God. We need to recognize, as Chesterton did, that the problem lies with us, but also that God has done something to set us free. Have I, have you accepted these truths that what the Bible says about the human heart being depraved is true, that I can't do anything about it, but that in Jesus, God has. God is judge. He is an active judge, and he is a merciful and loving judge. This is not just history or prehistory or fable, however you want to land it. Um, this is now. Matthew 24, 37, Jesus is in the temple, close to when he goes to the cross. Uh, he's talking about when he will come again. 
and when he will sit in judgment. So people will say, um, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, he's a bit angry, but I love the God of the New Testament. God of the, New Te- God of the Old Testament is constantly going, I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you. Sit t- I'm coming, I'm going to rescue you. Got that? I'm coming, I'm going to rescue you. God of the New Testament is, I've rescued you, I'm coming back to judge. And so when anybody ever tells you they don't like the God of the New Testament, ask them, have they read the New Testament? Because Jesus is talking about when he will return in glory and when he will return in judgment. And he says this about those days. And those days are from now until he returns. So we are in these days. As it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That's in Matthew 24, 37 to 39. The point there is that Jesus doesn't have a problem. Um, I grew up in Southern Ireland where there were a whole load of um, my mum's family who, um, because of verses like this, they wouldn't dance. You went to a wedding and then all the Baptists would be through. I got converted in a Baptist church, so I loved the Baptist church. But the Baptists wouldn't dance because, you know, actually, because that was like, you don't do that. Um, but what, what Jesus is saying is, is, is this, is that in the days before the flood, in the days of Noah, in these days now, everybody is head down getting on with their life. They're getting up in the morning when the alarm goes off. If they've got kids, they're trying to get their kids to school. If they've got a job, they're trying to get to job. They're just trying to get through the day. They're trying to make it to their coffee at 11 o'clock. They're trying to make it through the difficult meeting at 4 o'clock. Then they're going home. They're probably going home a little bit too late. They're seeing if there's something on Netflix to watch. They're going to bed. They're getting up the next day. Maybe they go to the gym on a Tuesday so they get up a little bit earlier. And they're thinking, then they're thinking about, like, am I going to go on holidays? What am I going to do? Am I going to pay the mortgage? And somebody's called them into a meeting and said, actually, we're going to do some restructuring. Everybody's got to reapply for their jobs. Heads are down. Somebody else has gone, actually, I'm off out of here. And their boss has gone, while I'm gone, you're going to cover not just your job, but that person's job, because we don't think we can afford to replace that person at the moment. Then they're getting home and they're getting a phone call from a relative who says, actually, things aren't really well. My relationship's in a little bit of difficulty and I don't know what to do about it. And And just life is happening constantly. And whilst life is happening, everybody's heads are down. And they don't see the guy building the ark in plain sight. So Jesus is not saying this is hidden. He's just saying everybody's head is down. Culture is consuming them. And they don't know what's about to come. And he isn't saying, this is what I want it to be like when I come back. He says, I want these people to look up. I want them to see that there is a rescue. I want them to understand there is a judgment and there is a rescue. And do you know who Jesus uses to get people to lift their eyes up? the church, his people. We are called to be knowers to our culture. We are called, as we said last week, to do as God commanded. We are called in our own uh, ways to build arcs, uh, to do things that don't make any sense. And we're called to do it in such a way that however we do it, we are pointing to the truth of the one Lord who is judge and who is rescuer so that we can share that with others and we can invite them in. Because when Jesus comes back, he wants everybody. Is this the truth I live my life under? That I needed a rescue and I found it in Jesus. Is this the truth I live my life under? That there is one Lord who is over all and who one day will judge all, but wants to rescue all. And is this a truth I live my life under, that this is the truth I must give my life to, above and beyond everything else? Above and beyond everything else.
Amen.